Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. How are you? <laughs> Everybody's like way back there. You know, I feel like, like, hi, hello. You know, so anyway, um, glad you're all here and glad for you guys at home as well. Uh, sitting cozy in your bed, maybe with your laptop on your lap and a cup of tea in your hand or whatever. Um, we would rather have you here, but that's that's okay. Um, let me pray as we get started. Father God, we thank you for this day and this moment. And we thank you for the movement of your spirit in our hearts, that, that, that reality that many of us have lost our joy, that many of us are filled with anxiety or angry. Many of us are angry. Many of us are lonely. There's just so much churning in us right now. And that worship reminds us of how much we need you to be Lord of our hearts and to govern our lives. And to govern not only us individually, but us as a people, as a community, as your church. We ask that you would come right now and break our hearts where they need to be broken. We ask for that movement of your spirit that seems so crushing, but so necessary, that revives our soul. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Woo! Uh, Christianity is community, right? It's community, and we all know that, but community is both a joy and a difficulty, right, at di different times. Um, humankind has always had a difficulty being in community together. We just go through the list and history of all the different things that have, you know, the conflicts that have gone on. You know, we talked about the Hutu and the Hutus and the Tutsis last week in Rwanda. We have, you know, the Khmer Rouge when I was a kid. You know, I remember those stories. I remember the Korean conflict. I remember Israel and Palestine. All these years of still, you know, there's never any peace there. It seems like Al Qaeda in the West, you know, and. And this tension there, Russia, Afghanistan, all that kind of stuff. The Cold War, when I was growing up, we were scared to death we were all going to get bombed. Uh, the American Civil War, right? Uh, which, you know, sometimes it feels like that's coming again. There's so, so much of a divide in our country. Republicans and Democrats, it doesn't seem like anybody's listening anymore to each other. Um, race issues everywhere. Uh, you you look back on history at any given time it, across the world. There's all these different conflicts. A friend of mine was a reporter at a at the Philadelphia Inquirer when he was you know first out of college and got this job and they put him at like sort of the town meetings you know the the local government meetings and he he would come back and tell these stories of just like it was it was like these town meetings were like bordering on violence, you know, people screaming at each other, almost throwing uh, punches. You know, we kind of glory in conflict sometimes. Uh, sports reflect this. Nobody goes to a hockey game except to watch the fights. That's what we did when I was in high school. But, um, and, and it seems just to be getting worse and worse and worse. Conflict just happens all the time all around us. Um, we have personal conflicts at home, moms and dads, you know, fighting, you know, splitting up, things like that, brothers and sisters not talking, uh, teenagers drifting away, parents being cold and distant or unfeeling to their children, bosses or co-workers belittling, belittling us or, you know, being passive aggressive with us or whatever. Uh, maybe you're not on the receiving end, maybe you're the one giving the grief, I don't know. Um, but we, either side you're on, we, we need to hear uh, what God says about this stuff. You know, we've all been beaten up verbally, and we've all done the same to others. You know, and as we grow, we learn the politics of life. Uh, we, 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 it's an accepted norm, like, to get, to, to understand that stuff. We, 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 we learn to guard what we say uh, in calculated measure to certain people at certain times. We speak different ways to different people to couch certain terms in certain ways in order to avoid conflict. Uh, 
people, we, we understand that people will use our words against us, twisting them to their own ends. And that's never fun. It's all the politics of words. And we've, you know, we've been through months and months and months of politics of words. And still we continue on uh, right now. Um, you know, through social media, through TV, through the radio, whatever. We develop a proficient edge of manipulation and coercive speech to get what we want and get through life. We verbally sort of box and, you know, you know, bob and jive and, you know, shuck and weave and all this kind of stuff in our speech. We, we become very proficient at these things. And I'd be, uh, I'd be happy that it wasn't like that. Um, it'd be heaven have to not to, li- to, to not have to live like that, right? Not to have to worry about uh, all that stuff. To not have to deal with anger and bitterness and destructive sinful behavior and hurtful words and selfish desires and all those other things which divide us. And believe me, I'm preaching to myself because I do these things as well. You know, I'd rather live in trust, right? That, you know, never wondering if somebody's going to use something against me. Uh, Not to have to manipulate or, or coerce. You know, sort of to live with others in community knowing that you are loved by them and you're also being loving towards them. Uh, Imagine the security that kind of a life would bring. The insecurity, the fear, the anxiety, the conflict would all be eradicated. I was in here in this this sanctuary this week and I was uh, praying by myself. I just... Sometimes I, you know, with the world around me and plus my own heart, I just can't feel that connection sometimes. Sometimes I don't feel like preaching, uh, to be honest with you. And I would be honest, today's one of those days. Now, that doesn't mean anything other than it's not about me. I want to see something move. (laughs) That was moving to me. And... I, I was able to pray this week and, and say to God, you are right. Your words are life. They are true. And if I could just live them and practice them even better. Whew. I don't know why I said all that, but anyway. To, to do this well means unifying around the right thing, the one thing, the only thing. And I think you all know what that is, right? Um, Any talk of unity without rallying around the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, is, is, it's like clamor. It doesn't mean anything. Only when you can rally and unify around Christ do you really have true community. So community's been a buzzword all these years for like the past two decades maybe. Community, community, community. Well, I'm not talking about the, the, the passive whatever community that everybody talks about. I'm talking about real, like, true, you know, living, <laughs> teeth-gritting sort of community of, of, of Christianity, of Jesus. Right? I'm going way off script here. (laughs) But, um, you know, last week Paul uh, spoke of what the Christian life does not look like, if you remember. Uh, We heard of how, you know, focusing on Christ, we get to kill off, or those things naturally just get killed off in our lives. Those things that are not of Jesus. Uh, Sort of like a picture of an old tree. I, you know, thought about like an old tree hanging on to dead leaves at the end of the branches all winter long. And you're like, every day you walk out of the house, you're like, well, I wonder when that's going to fall. And it just never does until the spring when, when new growth starts to come out in that tree and it pushes everything dead off of it, right? And it's all of a sudden, it's all beautiful and green. That's what, you know, Christ growing in us, Christ living in us, pushing out, right? He pushes out all those dead and useless desires of the old self as we submit to Him as our Lord, right? 
And today, Paul does speak of community, and he expressed uh, in chapter 1 who Jesus is, right? He, he called us to look intently at Christ, to, to, to continue to live in Him, to walk about in Him, right? Uh, as we go about our lives, to set our hearts and minds on Jesus as our central model. Um, I enjoyed that sermon last week, I really did. I, anything that has to, you know, illustration with art, I like, you know, so that was fun for me, but... Um, but Paul gave us a list last week in that, in, that, uh, in that passage of personal sensual sins, if you remember, that are contrary to the new life in Christ. And then he gave us a list of these negative social sins that are contrary as well to this new life in Christ. And both of those lists tend to destroy the family of God. And it kind of reveals that our focus is not really on Jesus, right? Um, finally... Paul pointed out last week that Jesus brings people together. He brings different people together. And as I'm thinking about the, the next sermon series, this, is, this kind of stuff is probably where I'm going to go, right? But bringing different people together, people who once would have hated each other. Right? The twelve disciples are a great image of that. All these guys with these different backgrounds and, and different political stances. It was like having a, you know, a very staunch Democrat and a very staunch Republican on the team. And like, you gotta put up with them every night around the campfire. But they did it. Because they unified under him. Now as we look at life together, right, in, in looking at man's relationship to man, uh, we can lose sight of Jesus who makes all this happen well if we keep our eyes on him. So let's not lose our focus on him as we talk about life together as the church, right? Let's continue to keep those eyes locked onto him. Paul begins, if you want to look in your pew Bibles, it's page 806, Paul Paul begins in uh, chapter 3, verse 12. If you're at home, you want to uh, look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. We're going to be reading it uh, piece by piece throughout the sermon, so just keep it open before you, and you can read read what we, uh, along with us. But he, he begins in verse 12, he says, therefore, which is a transitional word, right? Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now, many of you, if you were called to preach a sermon and this was your passage, you wouldn't linger on verse this first half of verse 12 as much as I'm gonna, but I think those three terms right there are very important. You know, as I said before, Christianity is community arising out of our vertical relationship with the Lord, right? Each one of us has this vertical connection to God, the Father, through, via Jesus the Son, right? And the, and the indwelling of the Spirit. We have this communion with God, this community with God. And now, as a result of that, we do have this new horizontal relationship with each other. And you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. You cannot be a Christian without the church, Nobody, nobody is, a, you know, an island of themselves, you know, you know, in this whole uh, spiritual walk. It's not possible. And, and believe me, I, I'm starting to challenge people. What is your plan for returning to church? Because the longer we go disconnected, the, the worse it is for us. I know there are risks. I'm not denying the risks. I'm just saying that we do need each other in the spiritual life. And, and there's no getting past that, right? But Paul sandwiches this passage in between uh, this toast of who we are in Christ, right? Where does community come from? What does it look like are the questions that I'm asking as we, we look into this today. So he uses this word, this transitional word, therefore, signifying that first piece of bread on our sandwich today. And Paul could have said, he could have said this differently. He could have said, because of what I just wrote to you and all like from Chapter 1, verse 1 up to you know, 3.11, he goes, because of all that I just wrote to you, who Jesus is, how you need to live in him, how you need to continue to live in him, focusing on him, allowing him to kill off those remnants of that old self in you, you know, how he brings people together in brotherhood, really brings people together in brotherhood, realize who you are in Christ. He could have said that. But who are we? That's not a... Who are we in Christ? I, I'm not sure I can answer that in 20, 30 minutes up here, but, um, but I can say just from verse 12, the first half of it, we are God's chosen people. We are holy and we are dearly loved. 
Think about that. Chosen, holy, and dearly loved. You know, just think about the people you know that are extremely insecure because they just had this horrible, ripped-up family in their lives, and they go into adulthood, and they just can't ever get past that because the insecurities and the anxieties. You are holy. You are chosen. You are dearly loved. God the Father, you are a friend of God. We just sang that. That makes a difference. Right? Three words, by the way, which were only ever once reserved for the nation of Israel. But now the doors have been completely blown away or thrown open to all people groups, all ethnic groups, all peoples of the world. God is gathering together, like he said in verse 11, barbarian, Scythian, slave, Jew, Gentile, everybody, all people groups, all into one community. And that, my friends, is unity in diversity. Not fake. It's not colorblind. It, 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 it celebrates it all. Now, the door had always been opened. Anybody could have come into the family of God, but one had to become a Jew before this and follow all the written code. But in verse 14, you know, in Christ, he says in Christ, you know, this this written code has been canceled. It's been nailed to the cross. Big deal. That is a big deal. The dividing wall of hostility between Jew and all other people groups out in the world were demolished in Christ. All nations now, all people groups, all ethnic groups are free now to enter into a relationship with God as they are. As they are. Unity in diversity, which brings about issues of being in community with different kinds of people that either don't look like you or don't think like you or different, you know. I I have, I don't, I have uh, one, two, three for five different ethnic groups living in my home <laughs> right now. And so any day, like I walk downstairs, and I hear like this African sort of chanting music as, as, as uh, Sharonette sits with his phone and he sings along with it. And uh, that music wasn't in my house before. And I love it. I love to hear it. Sometimes when I'm tired, I'm a little tired of hearing it, right? To be honest, it's not that I hate the music. It's just like, oh, man... I'm 54 years old, almost. I, I want some quiet. That's, that's the only reason. You know, I, there's different smells, right? Like, like sometimes, I hope, you know, uh, I hope nobody's offended by this, but sometimes people cook things in my house that don't smell so great. But it's wonderful. I'm really going off. Uh, sorry, slide person. Um, <laughs> but this dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been demolished, right? And it brings issues that we have to deal with. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says, uh, we all hope for community, but our community is based on human love, which has at its core our own desires. Spinning us off into little affinity groups where you have to accept every little, you know, part and parcel of that affinity group and what they, you know, dictate is, you know, right and good uh, to belong to it, right? He says human love has its limits. It's eventually turned off to others and becomes hatred when it's not served as it is desired to be served. He says without Christ... Without Christ, there is discord between God and man, that vertical relationship, and then also man, man and man, or man and woman, or woman and man, whatever you want to say, all of us, that horizontal relationship. And you can try and create community out of this human effort, and it always falls apart. It always devolves into chaos. See, humankind was meant to be connected to God. And meant to, through that connection, be connected to each other. Community in Christ is everlasting. It's constantly deepening. It's widening. It's maturing. It's growing as community through Jesus and in Him. And our community, 
must be born out of a centrality of Christ. A centrality of Jesus. Which means a Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. Jesus started the church. He started this whole thing. Right? It means a Christian comes to others through, only through Jesus Christ. And it means in Jesus Christ we have been chosen from eternity, we've been accepted in time, and we've been united for eternity. So some of you may not like me very much, you're stuck with me for a pretty long time, (laughs) right? Think about that other Christian in the room, you're just like, gosh, I wish they wouldn't. You know, just, you're stuck. We better start working on the relationship, right? So as we live in community with each other, it's important for us to clothe ourselves, as he says in the rest of verse 12, to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Right? Now considering these virtues, that's, they're very much opposite to our experience out there in the world. Turn on the radio, watch the news, and you don't hear much compassion and gentility and you know things like that and patience. You know, right now. The ancient world, maybe even more so, I don't know. I didn't live back then, so I don't know. Um, I am older, but I'm not that old, right? But, you know, the sick, the aged, the wounded, you know, the lame had nothing. Nothing to fall back on in the ancient world. They'd simply go place themselves on the city wall, hoping that maybe somebody would be compassionate and feed them or do something for them. But they basically went there to wait to die. Mentally handicapped children, little girls, thrown on the trash heaps of Rome with nobody to care for them. Christians did, though. Christians did that. They went out and picked them up and took them in. But people just walked by disregarding these people entirely. In Indonesia, very much the same story. I mean, there was not really much in place for care and compassion, to be honest with you. I'm not being overly critical. There really were no programs. So you walk by people on the street that were just sick, lepers, whatever, and nobody ever talked to them, nobody ever stopped or cared. You know, uh, we tried to go to adopt a kid in Indonesia. They wouldn't give it to us because we weren't Muslim. But Muslims don't adopt. So it was horrible. The orphanage was horrible. Uh, hospitals were horrible. I could tell you story after story. I remember we had this one woman, this older woman next door to the Sultan's house that I used to visit often. I was friends with her, but I got there one day and she was very sick. And they just put her in the back room on a mat on a concrete floor and shut the door and just waited for her to die. And I begged them to let me take her to the hospital. They wouldn't let me. They're like, ah, it's it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Christianity doesn't say that. Christians don't say that. It's not worth it. On the main line, compassion is a weakness, right? Gentility is a vice. But Jesus wept over his city. How unlike Jesus we can be in this world, right? Jews, you know, always spoke of emotions in reference to physical things, right? You know, they thought in their hearts as opposed to the Greeks who reasoned in their minds. They, they felt things in their bowels, their guts, right? And it's true. When you feel love or, or pain or hatred or, or sadness or whatever it is, you feel it physically, don't you? Everybody remembers their first heartbreak, you know, that girl or that boy that you were in love with in high school and they broke your heart. Oh, you could feel it right there, right? Oh, glad I'm older. Growing up was hard, wasn't it? But Paul says, clothe yourselves with these virtues, right? Cover yourself up. Think of them like your clothing, like your shoes and your underwear and your socks and your pants and your your shirt and all that stuff. You're just putting these things over you. They're like almost protective of you. 
This is what others are to see on the outside of you. Compassion, gentility, and patience. And again, I don't, I'm preaching to myself. (laughs) Right? The clothes that you wear in front of the world, these virtues, these are what actually protect your heart. See, we think meanness or getting ahead or power and all that stuff gets us ahead or protects our hearts. But actually being compassionate and kind and gentle actually protects our hearts. Christians should be the greatest of philanthropists and the greatest helpers of the poor and the sick and and the greatest in the issues of justice, but biblical justice, not just pop justice that has no forgiveness at it, right? We've seen compassion through the church over the history of, of of the church, right? Compassion drove some to start a hospital, I remember, in Lampung that, you know, a, a number of decades ago that, like, just operated for the poorest of the poor. People would come from all the way over at the t- other, other tip of Sumatra, come down to this hospital. It was crazy. And they, they did it for very little return. They had people that living on that campus that basically didn't make anything, but they just loved these people. It was an old Baptist hospital. Compassion drove you know, people to move to Aceh in Sumatra when I was there during the tsunami and work for years in that province uh, for people that really, before this, would have killed them. Right? Christians showed up. Very few others did anything. I, I remember the Turkish government. There was only two Muslim countries that showed up to help during the tsunami. The Turkish government and they had a little house in the middle of the city and they would hand out a hundred meals a day and then they would close their doors that's there were millions of people that were like out of everything and that's all they did and then you had the saudi government what did they do now think about how rich the saudi government is they gave thirty thousand dollars to do what to rebuild the mosques Meanwhile, Germany, America, all these Christian roots, you know, nations with Christian roots in them showed up. All, and I, I'm telling you right now, I worked there. Everybody I met was a Christian from these countries. Samaritan's Purse, all these different organizations showed up and just poured out all the materials they could, loved people, cared for people. It was a nutty, nutty experience. It was so good to watch it. By the way, the American military was not allowed to live on the island. They had to stay on their ship because they hated them so much. But they took their help. I don't know. I could go on and on. (laughs) We can look throughout history and see monuments erected to Christian compassion. Almost all organizations out there, orphanages, hospitals, all these things that help, if they're not overtly Christian now, they, they usually were at their roots. We talk so badly about the church, but the church is the salt of the earth. It's, it's brought love and compassion across the, across the world for centuries now. But we don't need to think so globally. It's easy us for do, to do uh, you know, sorties of compassion in faraway places, and we should. I'm not bad-mouthing that. We fly in, we drop supplies someplace far away, we get a pat on the back, and we leave with little to no long-term community with those people. And that's why we partner with Christians on the ground. The, the work that we're doing in the Middle East right now is a direct partnership with Christians that are actually there living it out. Money, writing a check is a good thing. They need that money, right? Um, but here, right here, with people, you see every day, day in and day out, it, this is where, <clears throat> where a Christian community really becomes important for you. This is where your ideals of community, and I stress that word ideals, really do get tested. This church is where God will see our true colors together. Will we run or will we get down and commit when it gets hard between each other? Are these virtues among us? Sometimes I don't feel like I'm expressing these virtues in my life. This is one of those weeks. That's why I don't really want to preach today because I'm feeling very convicted by this sermon. 
you know, when someone badmouths you or attacks you verbally, you know, and hurts you or, or doesn't do as you think they should to you, what's, what's your first reaction? Is it anger and retaliation? Is it passive aggressiveness? Is it, is it gossip and avoidance? Is it self-pity? You know, these things are hard between people. They're even harder between family members, right? I mean, the more familiar you are with people, the harder it gets, it seems. But those things would not be a person that is focusing their gaze on Jesus, are they? Right? Compassion, gentility, and humility, and patience would be, because they are born out of the character of Christ. He's bleeding out from you. That person's heart and mind is set on Christ, you know, knowing who they are and also knowing and viewing the other person as a person who is in Christ. Without Jesus, your ideals of a loving community are absolutely shattered. Since people will always, 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 will always fail us. If your focus is on people what they are or are not doing, you'll be disappointed. I can't remember if I shared with you, I, you know, the guy Jordan Peterson, psychiatrist, you know, big important guy out there in this world right now saying a bunch of stuff. Uh, he's not a Christian, but he, he, he was asked why he wasn't a Christian. He goes, you know, I don't know. He goes, it, it just drives me crazy to go to church. He goes, but I, I do really respect it because you go to church once a week. If you just go once a week to the service, he goes, you're talking about things that are actually really good for yourself and good for the community. He goes, I wish I had that. He goes, it's a beautiful thing that the church does. Think about it. Where do you sit and talk about this stuff? You don't usually. Um, in, if community, in community that is focused on Christ, really focused, if you're really focused on Christ, the arrows don't hurt so much. They really don't. The anger doesn't burn so intensely since we're living in the truth that is, you know, sort of this realistic view of God and people, right? So, you know, in community focused on Christ, self-pity and insecurity don't come so easily because we're filled. We're filled with Jesus. When things don't seem to go as we'd like them to go, we trust in Jesus who's before all things and over all things, and we answer in solid faith because we have a solid God. Right? That's our foundation. So compassion shows itself in like selfless, practical acts of selfless love, right? You know, kindness is a word that they used back then for wine that is mellowed with age, right? And so it's, it's lost its harshness and its bite. It can deal with the harshest of people, kindness, a good, kind heart. You ever see somebody like, you know, somebody's ranting and raving and then a kind person comes up and just says, hey, let me get you a glass of water. Have a seat. Let's talk about this. And just speaks with kindness. It changes the situation. Don't we need that right now? <laughs> right? We do. It's said that, 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 that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Do we lead others to repentance by our kindness? Or do we just condemn? Humility. There's a good word. That's the realization that everyone is God's creation. That you're no better than anybody else and they're no better than you. Christ is all and in all. He allows you to look at people through his eyes. And those are humble eyes, right? The Greeks didn't have a word for humility. Isn't that interesting? They valued pride so much that humility wasn't even in their vocabulary. Some claim that humility is a creation of Christians, of the scriptures. And I would say it is, because it's God's, one of God's character traits, right? Gentleness, the quality of being God-controlled of your life, right? Allowing him to dictate your emotions and keeping you in check and all that kind of stuff. You're angry at the right things and not the wrong things and with the appropriate amount of righteous anger about those things. And finally, patience. 
the quality reflective of understanding the nature of grace in the world, right? It can endure the insults without hating or delving into sort of cynicism or despair or retaliation. The quality of seeing what people can be in Christ, allowing them the time and the room and the atmosphere to get there that God has allowed you to, to have. And actually other Christians have allowed you to have too. I look back on my life and I think about some of the things I said and did when I was in my 20s. I'm like, man. And I, you, don't, you don't realize it when you're young, but you're like, when you're in your 50s, you're like, they really were patient with me. <laughs> right? They really were. And we should notice some words here too that if we're honest, many days we don't like. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I don't know about you, but my sin, as small, even the smallest of my sin, deserved death. And God forgave me of these things. You know, hurtful things will be done to us. They will in community with people. People will rub you the wrong way. They'll get on your nerves. Bearing with one another means just that. Put up with it. Bear with them. Not in a sort of angry, teeth-gritting way, but in the context, just like forgiveness, it comes out because of your focus is on Christ and not on that person, right? So do you, so you, do you just look at all the things that you think they did to you? Right? Or do you see them as, a, as also a redeemed person that is also loved by Jesus? A person in process, just like you, and in need of grace, just like you. Realizing that your sin deserves death as much as their sin does. Right? God bears your burden as well and extends grace to both of you. You're no better than them. They're no better than you. And now if you're doing all of that, you're practicing all those things, then you're already doing the most important thing that Paul mentions in verse 14, where he says, and over all these, like the overcoat that you put over all your other clothes, and then you cinch it up with a belt, right? He says, over all these uh, virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Perfect unity. All the good words get usurped and redefined, don't they? Bonhoeffer also said, he who loves his dream of a, of a community, listen to that, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Now, I am a pastor. I've been in this role for quite a long time. I've seen people cycle in, cycle out, cycle in, cycle out. Right? And they come in and, you know, boy, they've never, they've never experienced a church before. And they come in and they're, oh, this is great. I have this community of people. Now I can go, you know, skiing on the weekends with them. Or I can go, you know, out to dinner and have wine with them. And, and we can talk and laugh and we can go to parties together. And it's like the community, the community, the community. Oh, it's so wonderful. And I sit with these people and I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll see, I'll see if you're still here in six months. Or even six years. Sometimes people just hang around just for the community. Just for the fun aspects. Just for friends. But as soon as it gets hard, they cut and run. Or they do so much damage, they throw so many little grenades, emotional grenades, into the crowd that it just blows everything up and then they run. That's not spiritual maturity. That's not understanding Jesus. Right? Christian love has, the, uh, has, has uh, the highest regard for truth in Christ, right? The Christian, exhibiting all these qualities, uh, loves and leads others to Christ out of this ethos of grace. The spiritually mature Christian. It's not wishy-washy, it's not weak, it's, it's solid, it's strong, but it is also understanding of people. It doesn't accommodate sin, 
Because we all just want, like that's the, the person that just loves the ideal of community, the dream of community. They want to still have their sin and never deal with it, right? They want to redefine what sin is for themselves. And you, yeah, you can believe that way, but I'm not going to believe that, right? We take, pick and choose what we want to believe from God, right? And that's not what we're talking about. You know, it's, um, but, but true Christian love does not accommodate sin. We address it. We, we go at it. But it sympathizes with the struggle of sin, right? We get it. We all struggle with it, right? We all get it. Human love doesn't regard truth in the highest, in contrast, since even truth will come between relationships. It will. And that's because human love is self-serving. It doesn't have the highest goal of glorifying Jesus at its core. Spiritual love comes from and serves Jesus and will test a relationship since it calls each person to obedience to the living word above obedience to each other's desires. We unify around Jesus as the head of our community. He is central. It's been said that love without truth lies and truth without love kills Love without truth lies. Truth without love kills. Think think about the new sexual ethic out there. Love without truth lies. It hurts people. It hurts people. Truth without love kills. The the angry sort of just I'm right all the time and you know the legalist hurts people, right? You have to be balanced in there. Bonhoeffer said, spiritual love proves itself in that everything it says and does commends Christ. Right? It won't seek to move others by all too personal or direct influence, by impure interface in the life of another. It won't take pleasure in pious human fervor and excitement. It'll rather meet the other person with the clear word of God and be ready to leave him alone with this word for a long time willing to release him again in order that Christ may deal with him. Now listen to this last line. He says, This spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. That line hit me. Right? Because, you know, we, we often attack and attack and attack. We've got to talk this out. We've got to get it solved. The truth of the matter is, I should be praying for you more than I should be I, we, we are called to confront sin in each other. We're not called to like just hammer and hound. We, we confront it. We, we talk about it. And we pray. We pray and we pray that the Holy Spirit convicts your heart. That's a big deal, right? Human love, he says, lives by uncontrolled and uncontrollable dark desires. Spiritual love lives in the clear light of service ordered by the truth. Human love produces human sub, uh, subjection and dependence and constraint. Spiritual love creates freedom of the brethren under the word. Human love breeds hothouse flowers. Spiritual love creates the fruits that grow healthy in accord with God's goodwill in the rain, storm, and sunshine of God's outdoors. Now, I asked Kathleen this morning to dis- define what hothouse flowers were. Because that's not a phrase I typically use, and I think I kind of know what it means, you know, when I first read it, and then I. But I had to, I had to actually go look it up and make sure I was right. But yeah, I think, I think what it means, what it says to me, is exactly what we're seeing is true. Is that hothouse flowers are like those little delicate plants that you grow in a greenhouse, but as soon as you take them out in the cold, biting wind, they they're dead. But spiritual love can withstand any of that. Take it out of the hot house, it can survive. Right? Paul says three more things to us here. He says, let the peace of Christ rule, let the word of God dwell in you, and do everything in the name of Jesus. Starting in verse 15, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. So Paul's saying literally that we should allow the peace of Christ to umpire 
to judge and umpire our hearts, which, re- which reminds us that we're at peace with God in Christ first, right? In Christ, God called a truce, bringing peace by Christ's blood. That's the, that's the gospel. Forgive as you have been forgiven, right? Not treating us as we ought to be treated, treated right? And also reconciling God with humankind. It's a, it's a big deal. Peace also means learning three great words. And those three words are simply, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but Jesus does. Right? Maybe six words, we'll say. In our relationships with each other, we're going to come up against hard times. We're going to be tested, right? There'll be a need to bear with each other sometimes and love each other, that tying up of all the virtues, right? So where can we go in conflict when we don't know how to solve the issue? Humanly, we want to end the argument and you know have the last say and state our position and win it. Instead, why don't we let Jesus win it? Allow Jesus to umpire our relationships. We can say, well, we're at an impasse, obviously, but I love you. I love you, brother. I love you, sister. So let's go to Jesus for this, right? Conflicts don't need to be settled right away, in the, in, right in the moment, in one conversation. That's actually very immature to think that that's going to happen. Christ leaves us with unanswered questions in these, these scenarios to stretch us, and to, to train us. Sometimes we, we can't get the answers by just our intellect. We need to be pushed to go to Jesus in prayer, waiting on the answer, letting him mediate instead of just beating each other up constantly. Seeking the peace of Christ in our relationships between each other. And when... Two can come together committed to peace, allowing Christ to umpire the situation. The dams are loosened and living water flows. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts, which tells us how important worship is. Right? Central. But... Allowing, dwelling, right? Being at home. Let the word of Christ be at home in you. It's not a guest. It's a master. Your house. It's not your house anymore. It's his house. Right? Now how's that done? Yeah, good question. You know, one pastor says it well when he said, you have to feed on the word of God while mixing it with faith. Right? There, there have been times in life, and mixing it with faith means I have to choose to believe God. There, there have been times in life when I just didn't believe that God's word could be true for me. Or I didn't want it to be true for me, and I was scared. If I give this up, if I give up this dream, if I give up this thing that I'm hoping for all the time, and I trust God on his word, oh, what's going to become of me? And it's always worked. When I can say, I I can't see this right now, but I choose to believe you. That is a a moment of maturity. And he reveals things in great ways when we can do that, right? That pastor also said, you have to read the word, you have to study the word, and you have to live the word. I overheard Greg today saying that every day he has this time when he sits and he reads the scriptures and has his coffee or whatever and does his thing, you know, and um, that is a good habit, right? So you have to read it, study it, and live it. And he gives us a, a list of four things that we have to do with the word. Number one, Matthew thirteen nine, we have to heed it. Number two, handle it in 2 Timothy two fifteen. Number three, hide it in Psalm 119.11 and then hold it forth in Philippians 2.16. And if you want, you can download the text of the sermon and you can see those, uh, those uh, references and go look them up yourself and have a little quiet time around that, right? So heed it, handle it, hide it, and hold it forth, right? And when you can do all this, 
Gratitude flows out of you in how you teach and, and lead others and how you worship. Verse 17, we're round in the corner, almost done. He says, and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul brings us full circle, right? Putting the final piece of bread on our sandwich. Um, in, in dealing with each other, he started out with uh, as God's chosen people, holy people, dearly loved people. And now he reminds us everything we do flows from this focus on Jesus Christ as our model, which he's been saying for quite a while now. And, and as if he's saying, I've said a lot. I've said so much to you. But in the end, it is extremely simple. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of Christ. And everything in the world will seem to fall into place for you, even when it doesn't seem like it's falling into place for you. Right? Christianity is community. Can't get away from it if you want to walk with Jesus. Do everything in the name of Jesus, and the peace of Christ will rule your heart and your relationships, and maybe we'll be able to see a greater glimpse of heaven on earth. Maybe we will be the impetus for some of this crazy rhetoric to be silenced out there. Remember, Ephesians 2.14 says, He is our peace. He is our peace. Not ideals, not some philosophies out there. Jesus is our peace. So that's where we rally. That's where we find unity. Let me pray for us as Jen comes up to give us the announcements. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and you are Lord of lords. We thank you that you are gentle and patient and humble. You are compassionate towards us. You are long-suffering with us. You give us so many opportunities even when we fail so often. Your grace and your mercy go before us, Father, as sort of a paved road to our growth. And we ask that you would open our eyes even wider to see your face more clearly as we walk down that road. We want to love you well, but we also want to love each other well, and we also want to love the world around us well. And we know that we can only do that by allowing your life to grow within us and come out of us. So we ask for more of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.